This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We'll begin today with what is probably going to be another heated debate. It uh, it was so at the Board of Health last week. Tonight, it's uh, the full Hamilton City Council. What will they be debating? Well, they're going to be tossing around the sugary drinks, uh, the more healthy beverage and food choices at city arenas and recreation centers. Also talk about a potential ban on bottled water, at least selling bottled water in city facilities. Now, if you don't recall, last week, Hamilton's Board of Health voted 6-3 to three in favor of this so-called Healthy Food and Beverage Action Plan. Uh, Medical Officer of Health Dr. Elizabeth Richardson said it's about, quote, making the healthy choice the easy choice in response to a 67% obesity rate among adults and a 27% obesity rate among Hamilton children. Now, the Board of Health also presented some stats prepared by the Healthy and Safe Communities Department that shows that more than 80% of menu items sold in recreational facilities in the city have little or no nutritional benefits. There was some opposition to this plan because, as, as you know, the vote was 6-3. to three. One of those uh, detractors or opponents was Ward 8 Councillor Terry Whitehead, who said he can never subscribe to taking parents' ability to educate and make choices on behalf of their children out of their hands. Um, the plan, if approved again by City Council tonight, will also significantly reduce the sale of bottled water in city, city facilities, which I have mentioned. Uh, David Clement is a North American Affairs Manager of the Consumer Choice Center, and we'll get his views on this proposal. Uh, good afternoon, David. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Uh, your views on this uh, proposed uh, ban on uh, sugary snacks, uh, unhealthy drinks, and the uh, proposal to uh, not sell bottled water in the city of Hamilton facilities. Where are you guys coming from, from the Consumer Choice Center? So it's it's interesting because the wording that the, the city has used here is actually a little vague, um, which is intriguing. So they, they word it as limiting access to encourage uh, or possibly eliminate sugary drinks and bottled water from city facilities. And so the first major red flag for us is we view this as extremely heavy-handed and paternalistic. Most of these drinks uh, are purchased by adults, and by trying to prevent adults from being able to buy these things, we're essentially treating them like children. And it's a, it's a real problem when we when we create a scenario where the local government starts treating grown adults and grown adult decisions like children. And so that's our, our first problem with, with aspects of the proposal that's been forward, uh, that that's, that's been put forward. And our second major problem is that because it's so vague and includes water, uh, it's ultimately going to be counterproductive. And so by trying to limit, let's say, access to bottled water, people are on the go, maybe they forget to bring a bottle from home, uh, we're actually not encouraging healthier decisions. The healthier decision would be for people to consume bottled water as opposed to full-calorie pop. It's also vague in the sense that it could also include no-calorie pop. It could include sports drinks like Gatorade and Powerade uh, at local arenas. It could include chocolate milk. Uh, it's it, it, it's vague and widespread in terms of the, the beverages that um, it's going to go after in terms of how it's implemented. 
I want to get to those uh, couple of points that you made because I think they're both valid points. Um, but first this, supporters of this ban, let's call it, because it's not not, not really an outright ban. They're just going to mm-hmm. not sell these items. You can, you can still bring them in. Correct. You know, if you have a can of pop at home, you want to bring it to, you know, wherever, you're allowed to do so. Uh, so supporters of the ban say, you know, the city should promote healthy living and more nutritional, nutritional options. Uh, do you see any argument with that? So, I mean... I think there certainly is value in terms of providing education and educating people on the value of making certain choices. But at the end of the day, we have to treat adults like adults. And what you've raised there, which is what we've seen when we've been talking to consumers, in terms of if they can bring the product with them, well, first of all, that doesn't reduce anybody's caloric intake. And two, it doesn't do anything to... Uh, counter the other argument that many advocates on the other side have said, which is to reduce uh, waste or recycling waste. And so I don't see it as actually having an impact on reducing caloric intake. Instead, it's just a paternalistic or symbolic policy that that really is is, is, is treating adults like kids and, and taking some of those decisions away from parents, like uh, like the, the city council you had mentioned in your, in your preamble. The uh, just uh, recapping some of the stats that the medical officer of health uh, was talking about uh, at last week's board of health meeting: sixty-seven percent obesity rate among adults, twenty-seven percent among uh, children in Hamilton. Yep. Maybe we should be treating these adults like kids because that that's that obesity rate is just uh, remarkable. You know what? It is. It certainly is a problem. But when we look at the amount of calories that are actually ingested by your average Canadian from, let's say, something like soft drinks, it's comparable to the amount of calories that they ingest from items like salad dressing. So if we want to focus on caloric intake and healthy lifestyles, singling out one product certainly isn't the answer. And not only is it not the answer, it doesn't actually focus on the fact that we want to be promoting activity and healthy activity and uh, exercise and all of the things that actually go that significantly contribute to lowering that obesity rate because it's certainly a problem. I don't think anybody is saying that it isn't, um, but it's just a question of whether or not a policy like this is is worth it in terms of if it's going to have an impact. And then all of the other hypocritical items of no calorie pops, sports drinks. A lot of these facilities will still sell alcohol. Uh, so it's 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 a very narrow approach on an issue that really misses the mark in terms of how complicated it is to actually get people to make healthy decisions and be active and, and all of those things that contribute to healthier lifestyles. David Clement is a North American Affairs Manager of the Consumer Choice Center, our guest uh, this afternoon on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin in for Scott. Uh, tonight at Hamilton City Council, uh, councillors will be debating a Board of Health uh, proposal, at least voted in favor at the Board of Health, 6-3 to three in favor of this Healthy Food and Beverage Action Plan and some of the items uh, involved in that plan is uh, greatly reducing the number of unhealthy options in terms of food and beverages that are uh, sold at uh, city rec centers, arenas, and the like. Um, Regarding bottled water, uh, the city, at least in this plan, is proposing that people bring reusable water bottles 
and uh, fill up with with tap water. Uh, is that also something that you are looking at to say, uh, no, let's give uh, people the option of bottled water. If, if you don't want them to consume an unhealthy beverage or food item, at least give them the bottled water option. Well, exactly. And that's the real hypocrisy of what they've put forward is that if you want to encourage Hamiltonians to make healthy beverage decisions, bottled water is obviously exponentially more healthy than purchasing a full calorie pop. And I think the big thing with bottled water is that bottled water and tap water don't compete with each other. People generally drink tap water at home, and when they're on the go, and let's say they have forgot or they haven't brought a bottle with them, they purchase bottled water as that healthy alternative. I don't think we should be taking that away from city facilities, especially when we conclude, especially when we think about what all of these city facilities are. They're arenas or or community centers where people are active and things like that. So I certainly don't think taking bottled water is uh, part of a healthy beverage solution. Um, and so, it's, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's certainly hypocritical from our perspective and, and counterproductive if we actually want to encourage people to steer away from high-calorie, sugary beverages. One more for you. Are there any other cities that have opted to go this route or, or are thinking about doing so? There, there are some cities who have talked about uh, banning sugary drinks or, or water bottles from city facilities. Uh, they've been mentioned at, at, at various jurisdictions. Uh, London had, had proposed some sort of uh, initiative like that. It's unclear whether that will actually go forward because uh, city officials basically realize that th- these are products that adults want if we want to curb uh, caloric intake, we should focus on education rather than banning or prohibiting certain items. And so uh, it would be great if Hamilton focused on education programs that talked about healthy lifestyles, that talked about exercise, and talked about the importance of recycling. The problem is, is that they have this very narrow uh, viewpoint targeting one product that actually accounts for a very small amount of your your average Hamiltonian's caloric intake. So uh, my suggestion would be to to, to go that other route uh, instead of, of, of approaching this in a very heavy-handed and paternalistic way. David, appreciate the time and uh, enjoy tonight's debate. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. With just over two weeks to go before the June 7th provincial election, many Ontarians still aren't sure how they're going to vote. Not surprising. Especially when you dive into the latest poll from Ipsos, done exclusively for Global News. It's found that 54% of Ontario voters still have no idea who they're going to vote for. Most of the uncertainty lies with NDP voters. They're at least committed to their party behind... Uh, both the Liberals and PCs, but with the NDP also gaining eight points in the polls over the past couple of weeks, some political pundits say they have the most to gain in Sunday's leadership debate. goes from 6.30 to 8 in Toronto, and that is going to be a marquee event, I think, in this election campaign. Uh, Now, this poll also shows that while two-thirds of Ontarians say they will vote for the party they like most, just over a third plan to vote strategically to stop another party from winning the election. Some would say it's dangerous. Others say it's a necessary evil.
Well, let's bring in Peter Wollstonecroft. He's an associate professor at the University of Waterloo, and he joins us now on the Scott Thompson Show. Peter, how are you? I'm great, and I should say I'm retired. Oh, my goodness. Well, you well, had, uh, from what I understand, a remarkable run at Waterloo. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> and uh, thank you to all the people who are paying for my pensions. <laughs> well, let's dive into the uh, provincial election campaign. Maybe we'll start with uh, what I think might be um, uh, the PCs kind of kicking themselves at this point, seeing that they've lost a little bit of their lead. The NDP certainly surging in the late stages of this campaign. We'll start with whether or not you think that the PCs picked the wrong leader in going with Doug Ford over Christine Elliott. Well, the simple answer is yes. And and the reason I say that is before the Patrick Brown blow-up, my pollster friends were telling me that the desire for change was strong in Ontario and growing, and it was going to rebound to the conservative uh, benefit. And and whether it was Patrick Brown or anybody else, they were well-positioned to, t- to take out the Liberals. However, uh, when Doug Ford became the leader, we had two fundamental facts underlying this election. One is that the premier is, is widely disliked for good reasons and bad reasons. And, and uh, we had this most unusual fact, which is that the new leader of the opposition was widely disliked. And, and 40 to 50 percent of the electorate had very negative views. And I think over time that that proportion has increased. So... And, and I was giving radio interviews about a month ago, and I said, this reminds me of 1990, where the NDP came from nowhere, and to their surprise, and the surprise of everybody else, they formed a majority government. I think the NDP is better prepared, prepared now uh, to take office, but nonetheless, nobody gave them much of a chance uh, a month or two months ago. Uh, so the Conservatives have made a, uh, let's put it this way, uh, to put it mildly, a risky choice in Mr. Ford, because he has many negatives, I go back to his brother and his own time in office, and he just doesn't doesn't provide any assurance to people who are not strong conservatives. It seemed to me uh, at the time, and 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 maybe even more particularly now, that the progressive conservatives could have opted for the safer pick in Christine Elliott, knowing that you know her political background is very strong, strong leader. Uh, not as uh, gregarious or outgoing as a personality as Doug Ford, more or less the safe pick and not willing to rock the boat and, and appease those lifelong conservatives. Uh, and, Doug Ford seems to be the high-risk, high-reward. Absolutely. And and if you think about it in terms of Ontario political culture, about which I have written, uh, people in Ontario are not highly ideological. Uh, for the most part, they don't spend a lot of time talking about Ontario politics. Uh, uh, what they want uh, is management, uh, not too many mess-ups, uh, keep the ship going ahead, build the things that have to be built, uh, don't have too many scandals. And and Christian Elliott would have promised that. She had experience. And let's also put it in the context of the modern times. She was a, a female-type person. And so women were strongly attracted to her. And when I read the polls, women are not attracted to Doug, Doug, uh, Doug Ford. Um, and so she would have been the rational choice from the point of view of those people who wanted to maximize the vote that the conservatives could get and, and maximize the probability of having a large majority. And 
my thought all along has been is that I see. I'll put it. I'll be. I'll be gentle here. Very little in what Doug Ford says that would increase the Conservative coalition in Ontario. And he runs the risk of some attrition. Uh, and, you know, I'm looking at the same polls that you are. I'm also listening to people uh, in my area. And I'm, I'm a social scientist, so I know that anecdotal stuff is limited. But I'm interested in the negativity that people express by people who are, are serious voters who wanted a change. And now they're telling me they're thinking NDP. They're thinking NDP. They're they're not they're not jumping up and down with excitement about it, but they're surely thinking about it. And that's reflected in the poll results that you've been talking about. We're chatting with uh, Peter Wollstonecroft, retired professor, University of Waterloo, here on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Scott today. Let's jump over to the New Democrats. Can the NDP really win this thing? Oh yes, absolutely. Uh, I, they've got a long way to go. Uh, but in your intro, you refer to the debate on on uh, on Monday. I think there are a lot of people, or uh, Sunday, sorry, mm-hmm. there are a lot of people are undecided, and a lot of soft voters. Uh, my, my my reading of the polls and and personal conversations is that people are just really torn one way or another, can't decide, and so the performance on Sunday night will matter. And and uh, and uh, this is not rare. I mean, we've had lots of instances where the de- an election result has turned on the d- debate performance. And and Andrea Horvath, so far, in the two uh, debates we've had, has shown herself to be very strong. Now, she's got some luggage. Uh, she's going to be under attack because the, the Liberals and the, and, and the Conservatives know that she's rising in the polls. L- l- listen, if you're in a, an all-candidates meeting or in a debate and nobody pays any attention, that's because you're dead. You know, so they're going to be paying attention to her because she's the one... She's a wild card here. I mean, if she goes up three or four points in the polls, then we're definitely in minority government territory, whether it's the conservative or or NDP. I mean, I think we have to acknowledge, and any liberal would have to acknowledge, that they're not going to win even a minority out of this. Uh, so uh, the NDP is in, in, in sight of a, of a minority NDP government. And if there's a late-minute surge, it could be a majority. Um, I could well see that happening. And... and more or less, she she has said, "Well, you know, we're 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 going to do things that have to be done, but we're not going to be seriously, uh, we're not going to be doing wacky things." Uh, some people may quarrel about some of that, some of the things that they're up to, but they're not doing wacky things. And she's going to provide sensible government and within the conti- uh, tradition of Ontario political culture. What we saw from the first debate in in terms of uh, just body language alone, uh, you know, Kathleen Wynne was positioned in the middle and was really blocking out Andrea Horvath when they were debating, and she was kind of trying to go toe-to-toe with Doug Ford. That positioning for both the Liberals and the PCs are probably going to focus both on, on Andrea Horvath, and it's going to be particularly interesting to see, now that Horvath and the NDP have risen in the polls, how she handles that pressure and, and some of the negative darts that are going to be tossed her way? Well, she's had a lot of experience. Yes. And, and this is her third run. And, and it, this, is, this is not an easy game for rookies. And uh, Doug Ford's a rookie. I mean, he got elected to Toronto City Council. And the things that he was involved with were very small potatoes. And, and when I listened to him, he has a very formulaic kind of uh, set of ideas or, or, or sentences that he keeps on going back to. 
And will he impress the 50% or so of Ontarians who are going to vote on, on the 7th uh, with his understanding of the issues? That's a big question. And, and we've, say, we've seen him show that he's not really up to it on the first debate and the second debate. He made some mistakes, not serious mistakes. But, uh, yeah, uh, but Andrew, Horv- uh, Andrew Horvath has a tremendous opportunity to shine. And I can think of many instances in which uh, leaders have, uh, of a party have shown very, very well. Rachel Notley, when she won the election in Alberta, uh, came out of nowhere. Uh, and, and, and she impaled an experienced politician, Jim Prentice, in the debate. And, and, and he made some serious errors. And I can think of many, many other instances where people have, have done that. She has a lot of resources to call upon in terms of experience. In the uh, Ipsos poll that I mentioned exclusively for Global News, uh, a third plan to vote strategically to stop another party from winning the election. Does that mean liberal supporters are going to abandon their party and vote NDP just to deny the PCs from coming in? Well, if I were a conservative strategist, I would fear that happening. And the, one of the arguments about strategic voting, and I'm not, a, I'm not a, I don't like the idea of strategic voting because I, I used to tell my students, well, you should vote to affirm rather than than to negate. Right. Um, and and that's the way I I, I want to be an expressive voter. I'm expressing my values when I vote. However, uh, the liberals looking at the polls may say, well, I'd rather have an NDP government uh, than a conservative government. So how do I get that? Because my my folks aren't going to win. And, and as I drive around my area, Kitchener-Waterloo, which is a strong liberal base, uh, you have to go a long way to find a liberal sign and then another one. Uh, but I see a lot of NDP signs. I don't see many conservative signs. Signs can be misleading, but nonetheless, I do notice that a lot of places that had liberal signs in the past don't have them now. Uh, and those people surely will be looking at these, the, your poll and the other polls that say, well, it's coming down to the, the Ford-Horvath uh, uh, contest, which way are you going to go? And when I read the polls, uh, liberal is the second choice by about two-thirds, roughly that, uh, uh, would, would vote NDP or then vote conservative or, or not vote at all. Uh, are, in your history of, of, of doing this, in your experience of, of teaching and, and reading polls... And, I, and I've been involved in over 50, 40 election campaigns in my, in my limited lifespan. <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, you have a lot of experience in this. Do Are voters more and more looking at polls as verification or as signs or as trends and, and want to be among those who are... Uh, on the winning side, do, do they put more and more stock into these polls? Well, I, I, I think so. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go too far uh, on that uh, because you get a lot of polls and, and, and sophisticated people know that polls are, not, are just snapshots at one particular time. But it's all part of the information gathering. And I think there is, there is much more awareness that you have options. You're just not going to the polls and voting the the way you, your family voted or the way you usually voted that you can you can maximize your opportunities by voting this way or that way. So you you look at your your case. Now in the last federal election, uh, there was a lot of strategic voting going on, and because the argument that was made successfully, and I had people knocking on my door pleading with me uh, to vote liberal so I could stop Stephen Harper. And, and I think that argument works, and it hurt the NDP, and obviously to the advantage of the Liberals. So I think the same kind of argument is being made here. And in our, in our uh, single-member plurality system, first past the post, 
a swing of three or four percentage votes makes an enormous difference in the number of seats that are won and lost. So yeah, it's it's important and, and it's part. Of, and, and we're not talking about ninety five percent turnout. We're talking about roughly fifty percent. And I'm willing to bet a considerable sum of money uh, that'll be uh, about forty seven, forty eight percent. And if I'm right, please call me on the eight. <laughs> Will do. Last question for you. Only got about uh, a minute or so. Alrighty. Is this Sunday's debate? Could it be make or break for Andrea Horvath? Because it seems like she has the most to gain, but also the most to lose as well. Absolutely. This is her chance to shine. She knows that she has to hit out of the park or score the goal in overtime and all that kind of stuff. Uh, this is her chance. I mean, she's not going to have a fourth run. So this is it. This is her chance to become the Premier of Ontario. And, and uh, I'm not a new Democrat. <laughs> So I'm not just plugging the NDP. I just think that everything is going their way. Uh, you know, uh, the Conservatives have a lot of question marks. And I don't think that, you know, as, as the inside people say, how they're going to close the deal, it's not clear to me. I can see how the NDP can close the deal in terms of getting people to say, yeah, I'm going to vote NDP. Should be interesting, Peter. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy the rest of the election campaign. <laughs> Thanks so much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Here's a 30-year-old man who is living in his parents' home, and his parents want him out of the house. His name is Michael Rotondo. He's been asked to leave uh, for the last eight years now. And basically, his parents have said that, uh, listen, we want him out of the house because he, he doesn't really help around the house. He's, he's, he's just kind of here. He needs to start his own life. He needs to gain some employment and uh, make a life for himself on his own. Or heck, find somebody and, uh, and have a go at that. Christina and Mark Rotondo of Camillus, New York, that's near Syracuse, uh, they started the court proceedings earlier this month and filed evidence of five notices they served their son starting in February. I'll, I'll read some of the notices as we go on. But really, long story short, he basically refused to leave. So his parents took him to court. They, they wanted to evict him. There was a hearing yesterday. Michael represented himself. And basically said that, uh, listen, he needs six months' notice to to leave. The judge, however, disagreed, saying, quote, I'm granting the eviction. I think the notice is sufficient. As I said earlier, the parents uh, told their son eight years ago. So he's been given really eight years' notice. that hey, I mean, it's, it's time to pack up and get out and make a life for yourself. After court, uh, Rotundo told reporters he plans to appeal the case and finds the ruling ridiculous. And uh, the judge, in this case, basically disagreeing, saying, uh, no, I mean, uh, you you got to get out of the house. So I'm sure as the appeal is going to continue, he, he might still be living at the parents' home. Uh, I'll go through some of the... The evidence that was filed by the parents and what they wanted their son to do or asked their son to do. But I thought, you know what, here's here's a 30-year-old man that for whatever reason, probably a multitude of reasons, he is still 
living at home. And, and probably one of the biggest reasons, because he does not have employment, is he can't afford to live anywhere else. Doesn't have a job. Doesn't have a career. Maybe does not have the educational background to launch into a career that can afford him a place to live. Uh, Jeff Martin is a researcher on precarious work. He's a writer and a marketer and a co-author of the uh, yet-to-be-released Hamilton Millennial Survey. This should be interesting. Uh, Jeff Martin joins us now on the Scott Thompson Show. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing really well. How are you today? Not too bad. I, I, I thought you're the perfect guest because here's a 30-year-old guy who's having a tough time and maybe is thinking, I'll just live in my parents' basement for the rest of my life. His parents, though, have some other ideas and want him out of the house and want him to begin his life, basically, in terms of the working world. Maybe first off, how crazy of a story is this, or is this crazy at all? You know, I read the story, and at first I thought, yeah, it is a little crazy that the parents actually took him to court. But the fact that he's thirty year old, a thirty year old living at home, that's not crazy. That's pretty part of the norm. Right. And um, in, in the survey that we've conducted, working with uh, Wayne Luchuk from McMaster University, and over the past year, it's a continuation of the Pepto studies looking at work uh, in the Greater Toronto Hamilton area. And our our survey looked particularly at millennials, and living at home. In our survey, we've got about twenty five percent of all millennials who responded to the survey live at home, and and for many reasons, and most of them are financially related. Uh, stats can now recently put out that Toronto, Oshawa, and Hamilton are the three cities in Canada with the highest number of millennials living at home, and it goes as high as 47% in Toronto. So living at home, being a millennial, is, is really part of the norm today, and a lot of this has to do with the economy that we have out there, because the economy we have today in the labor force is nothing, absolutely nothing like it was 20, 30 years ago. Um, you know, we've got precarious work. Uh, in, in our report, I can give you some of the stats. We're just getting ready to release the report in three weeks. Two out of five jobs of millennials are full-time. So 60% of the, the rest of them are working in part-time, permanent part-time jobs, precarious jobs, or jobs that might have 30 hours a week, but there's no benefits, there's no pensions. And six out of 10 millennials have no employer-paid pensions, and less than half of them have any benefits at all. So that's the scenario they're working in. Um, so living at home, I, I, there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. The Spectator also had an article last night about it needs $18 an hour to afford the average Hamilton apartment. And if I look at the wages that uh, in our in our data, we've got uh, overall we have 28%, so almost 30% are earning less than the Hamilton living wage, which is about $33,000 an hour, $15.85 an hour, and 16% of the respondents are living below poverty wages. So it's not a very it's not a very good uh, scenario out there for young people under thirty five. That's for sure. So I don't think this story is really. I think the awkwardness is that the parents took them to court. Right. Yeah. And the situation is very much the same in the United States. Maybe worse because they have less social protect less social services and they don't have the social net that we have here. But my research also says it's the same in in the UK too. So that we found that these trends are happening everywhere. This entire generation is being uh, penalized because of the economy. Two of the cities you mentioned uh, in terms of <coughs> millennials struggling, at least to find a place to live, Hamilton and Toronto. Toronto, mm-hmm. Toronto, not at all surprising. I mean, the, the house prices there have just skyrocketed to a place, and not only homes, I mean, condos as well, to mm-hmm. a place where millennials, or, or, or really uh, beyond that uh, uh, population scope, are really unaffordable for a lot of people. That is not surprising at all. What is surprising, however, is the, the Hamilton being in that group, because a lot of people 
from Toronto, from the GTA, are moving here because the housing prices, at least at, at one point, were very much affordable and in comparison still are. But I'm somewhat surprised that Hamilton is, is on that list. It's funny. We took a look at some of the, uh, the housing and wages. Take a look at from 2005 to 2015, that 10-year period, housing went up 110%. So housing, on average, more than doubled. Wages at the same time in the Hamilton area went up 10.8%. So there's a 10 times greater increase in the housing costs than there were wages. And you can imagine how that affects people being able to buy a home, let alone rent. And the rents in Hamilton are also skyrocketing. I mean, there is a pipeline of people coming from not just Toronto, but other cities into Hamilton because of the the better cost. But Hamilton has gone from being near the bottom, or not the bottom, but at the lower end of of cities in terms of uh, how expensive they are to live in, to one of the, the number four. I think we have Vancouver, Victoria, or Vancouver, Toronto, Victoria, and then Hamilton. Now, Hamilton, when I say that, we're talking the CMA, the greater, which is Hamilton, Burlington, Grimsby, the, you know, the cap, that whole, that whole, that, that whole area. But it's still, it, that's the case. That's what's happening here, too. And people um, are going to start moving out of the city if wage, if uh, rents don't either um, don't come down or stabilize. And, and there's no, I don't see any, uh, um, I see real estate continue to increase in Hamilton for years to come because it's still going to be a, a, a magnet for people leaving Toronto, Mississauga, and other places. So I don't know what the, the scenario looks really bad. You know, and if you add other things into the millennials scenario, their student debt, the average student debt we calculated is about $27,000. You know, uh, in, our, in our report, we've got four out of 10 millennials in general are having difficulty just covering basic living expenses, and six out of 10 are are concerned about meeting their debt obligations over the next 12 months. So it's, it's, it's a lot of, and it sounds like a doom and gloom, but it is. There's a lot of red flags I think they are going to be raised and a lot of eyebrows uh, when this report does come up. Things like quality of life. Just over half of them think they're going to have the same or better quality of life than their parents, but 40% disagree. So there's, a lot of, there's not a lot of hope up there within, you know, amongst the millennials, too. Just, and I could say the mental health issue, this, which I think is one of the biggest red flags, is that four out of ten reported that their health was their mental health was poor or fair because of work or their work situation. And if you look at people that are working in full-time jobs, which is a very small percentage, it's 13 percent. You look at millennials that are in precarious work, it's 40 percent. So you can tell that work is having a massive effect on their financial security. Their, their mental and general health, well-being, and their overall quality of life. So, and, and I don't think this is going to change anywhere soon. And, and I don't know what it's going to impact on the, the generation coming off, you know, before the generation Z, which currently are under 19. So, if this is a scenario the millennials are living through, uh, I don't know what it's going to be like for them down. It certainly won't. It won't improve for the younger people. Yeah, well, I, don't, I, I don't think so. I, I have two kids in in that uh, generation Z, and, and funny you mention that because my daughter and I were talking about. Uh, her generation and, uh, you know, some of the challenges going forward. We were just talking about uh, provincial election stuff. And, uh, and, and, I mean, she's only 17, just turned 17, and is quite concerned on, you know, about student debt and housing and how to mm-hmm. get a, you know, a good-paying job. And it, it's, it's only going to get tougher, I think. I, I kind of agree with you. I think so. And I think the really sad thing is that this stress level is really, it's breaking them. I mean, when you're 17, 18, and you're early 20s, you should not have to be worried to death that, you know, the quality of your life is going to go down compared to your parents, or you're not going to be able to uh, start a family. We also had um, uh, 50-50, it's about 50-50 right now with millennials in Hamilton owning and renting. Um, But the people who own, it's more likely to be people in secure full-time jobs with benefits. It's about 65%, and the rest... uh, 
and then the opposite of precarious employed, it's almost seven out of ten have to rent because they can't afford a house. And and, and there's other things. There's this, some of the different uh, data that we're going to put out in our, our in our uh, in our report. It really is disturbing. And and you, and you can't say it's because they're not educated because you know you've heard the the cliche that millennials are the most educated generation ever, and they really are. In in our data, ninety eight point five percent of all the respondents in our survey had either a college diploma or a university degree. That's just, you know, seven out of 10 have degrees, four out of 10 have college diplomas. And then there's others that have, you know, graduate degrees and second diplomas and second degrees. So it's a highly educated uh, and very skilled uh, generation, but the economy is just not working for them whatsoever. Does the survey provide a, um, an even more um, intricate breakdown in terms of how many of those Millennials who have degrees and diplomas are actually in fields of employment related to those degrees and diplomas. Uh, yeah, we have underemployed. Uh, the the full report it's an extensive report. It's one hundred forty five. <laughs> I can page tell. Report. Yeah, and but we're also putting out a short executive summary, a thirty page report that sort of really focuses in on particularly the precarious aspect of all this of all the research we've done. Um, we also break. We, it was an eighty nine question survey, so it took about half an hour to do. And we launched it last May, April, May. And the, anticip- the expectations uh, from my academic peers were that we probably would get a, you know, maybe 100 or 200 people. But we did a really strong social media and communication strategy. That's my background, too. And we ended up getting over 2,000 millennials in Hamilton area uh, re- reply to the, to the, to respond to the survey. So it was phenomenal. That's uh, uh, you. Can, you can tell that there is some pent up frustration in terms of, uh, you know, what millennials are expecting and what uh, you know. Obviously, many of them are looking for answers as yep. well. Uh, we're chatting with uh, Jeff Martin, researcher on precarious work, writer, a marketer, co-author of the soon to be released Hamilton Millennial Survey here on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Uh, what are their options? I mean, uh, aside from being employed in those precarious jobs, living at home. Um, what other options are they looking at, or what other options are um, uh, are before them that they could take advantage of? Yeah, they, and I don't know how to answer that because you know people always say, "Don't you wish you were 25 again?" I said, "Not in a million years." No way. Not, the kind, not today <laughs> with the kind of market out there. I mean, I, I got out of university in the early 80s, and you know you could apply for a hundred jobs, you could get jobs. I mean, you know you still had to compete, but it was a lot easier. And all the jobs that you were competing for were full time jobs. You know, they had benefit packages and pensions and things like that, and that's unheard of today for the majority of them. So, I mean, one of the things I've been saying, and I, I worked, uh, one of the organizations in Hamilton have been expect, uh, spectacular to work with is Hamilton High, which is a young professional organization, and they were uh, very helpful in getting this uh, getting this survey out and working with me. Um, oh, I just lost my train of thought. But, uh, no, I, one of the things I was saying to them is that the only thing that they really can do is get politically active. You know, you always hear that people say, well, the millennial generation doesn't get out and vote. And then I've been advocating to many of them, you know, get out and vote or get out and run, because the only way you're going to change this scenario is to get out there and make some of these decisions. Otherwise, you're going to let your parents' generation, us, the baby boomers, make those decisions for you. And we've already made them. And look where we got them. You know, will, will millennials eventually become homeowners? And, and if they do, is it not going to be in the city of their choosing? I don't know. The report, there's a report just come out from Ryerson on millennials and home ownership, yeah. too. And I had a bit of a look at it last night. I haven't got the full report yet. But I think one of the things that a lot of these other reports are forgetting is the economy. And, the, you know, there may be 700,000 millennials waiting to get into households over the next 10 years. But if they don't get a full-time job, they're not going to get a house because people in precarious work or permanent full-time 
they're not getting mortgages approved. We also asked about getting turned down, and people in precarious work were getting turned down for credit lines and vehicle uh, leases and, and mortgages and lines of credit. So, you know, anyone who says they're going to be able to buy a house, they're not going to be able to buy a house unless someone is even assigned for them, like a parent or, or a peer or a friend who has a full-time job. Um, I really don't know what the answer is. But there, there needs to be some major structural changes to the way we we govern our, our labor force and, and our economy today. And, and those, I think the current Ontario government started making a few changes, but not anywhere enough to make this uh, happen. And I don't know if you recall, I think it was a year or two ago when uh, the prime minister and his finance minister basically said to young people, you're going to have to get used to this job churn, you know. And I don't find that, I found that kind of offensive because you're telling a whole generation that, you know, sorry about your luck, uh, you know, the jobs aren't here anymore. Yeah, suck it up. And in, <laughs> and in Hamilton, millennials make up 26% of the population. They're the largest uh, of all the generation cohorts. But on a political scale, they're one-third of uh, the electorate. So it's so they have a lot of political power should they choose to use it, get out there and vote, and vote for people who are, you know, um, aligned with the kind of issues that are, that are plaguing their generation and themselves. It'll be interesting to see what those millennial voting numbers are once uh, June 7th rolls around, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely, Jeff, yeah, absolutely. We're, we're plumb out of time. Appreciate your time. Enjoy the rest of the day. Yeah, thank you very much. Jeff Martin, researcher on precarious work, a writer, a marketer, and co-author of the soon-to-be-released Hamilton Millennial Survey, as Jeff mentioned, coming out in about three weeks' time. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.